Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. New research from the Hamilton Project at Brookings shows that the jobs gap from the Great Recession is now closed, but also that millions of American men and women of prime working age remain out of the labor force. Here in the Brookings Podcast Network studio to discuss these trends are Jay Shambaugh, director of the Hamilton Project at Brookings and a senior fellow in economic studies, and Ryan Nunn, policy director of the Hamilton Project and a fellow in economic studies. Stay tuned in this episode to hear another installment of What's Happening in Congress with Molly Reynolds. And after the interview, I have a brief discussion with John Villasenor of the Center for Technology Innovation about his research on private sector investment in global health research and development. Jay and Ryan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Let's start with this jobs gap concept. Jay, can you give us some context on the number of jobs that were lost in the Great Recession and its immediate aftermath? Sure. So the Great Recession was kind of this once-in-a-generation labor market shock, and we lost you know, over 8 million, around 8.5 million jobs over the course of about two years. So a really severe shock to the labor market in terms of just raw jobs lost. All right, Ryan, you've participated in some of this research on the jobs gap. Can you explain why just regaining this number of jobs alone, 8.5 million, which I believe the economy achieved in 2014, why that alone doesn't close what we call the jobs gap? Sure. So the Great Recession, you know, because it was such a big shock, took quite a while both to end and then for the recovery to continue. And while that was all occurring, the population was growing. And so as the population grew, the economy required more jobs just to get back to where it was. Now, at the same time, the population was aging. And given that older workers participate in the labor force at lower rates, that affects the number of jobs that you would need to get back to the previous pre-recession situation. So the economy regained those eight and a half million jobs three years ago, but the jobs gap wasn't closed until just this year, just July. A new report from the Hamilton Project The closing of the jobs gap, a decade of recession and recovery from August of this year, has determined that the jobs gap has been closed. Can you speak to how that has been determined? Yeah. So what we did is we looked at the employment rates of small groups of workers in various age and gender groups prior to the Great Recession. And then we looked at sort of what would be required to get the overall employment level back to what you would expect you know, given those pre-recession employment rates, that number of jobs was, as you said, greater than eight and a half million. And, you know, we actually have just now gotten back to that level. Jay, I'm looking at a chart in this yeah. jobs gap report. You said that the Great Recession was a once-in-a-generation shock. And in fact, there's this great chart in here that compares the Great Recession, which we say started in 2007 and went through 2008, 2009, yeah. and so on. There's this chart that compares it to the 2001 the 1990 and the 1981 recessions. Can you talk a little bit about how the jobs gap in the most recent recession compares to those earlier recessions? Sure. I mean, I think the the most notable feature is the gap was much bigger, right? So you just have this huge shock to the labor market with a massive number of jobs lost, and it takes a lot longer to come out. Although I think one of the important other pieces that come out of that, that same figure is the fact that When the 2007 recession hit, end of 2007 in December, we hadn't actually closed the jobs gap from the 2001 recession. And so this is always one thing we try to emphasize here, that when we say the jobs gap has closed, that doesn't necessarily mean you throw a party and, you know, you're in some great 
shape in the labor market. It just means you're back to where you were before things started. So if you didn't like the labor market in December of 2007, you're unlikely to like it today either. And so, you know, there are other markers. There are more people working part-time for economic reasons. Wage growth has been sluggish. So there are a bunch of things you would look at and say, this isn't a labor market that's roaring. But from a kind of purely accounting exercise perspective, it's important to say, okay, we're back to where we were in terms of have we gotten enough jobs back adjusting for population dynamics to be back to where we were when the shock hit. Many years ago when I was in graduate school for public policy, the watchword was always disaggregate, disaggregate, disaggregate. And my first boss here at Brookings over 20 years ago used to say that a lot. So this report that you guys have put out recently disaggregates the jobs gap by demographic factors such as gender and race and also uh, educational attainment. I think it's interesting, and I think listeners will appreciate if you could walk through some of those findings. Sure. I'll take some, and I'm sure Ryan will hop in on some. I think the the most notable and easiest one, I think it's one that matches a lot of the way people kind of think about what's happened in this recession and recovery, is that women are back to where they were in terms of the jobs gap has closed entirely, and in fact, in many age groups of women, they're above where they were in terms of employment rates and things like that. You know, it's always important to remember women worked at a lower rate than men did. So you're starting from a different starting point, but men have not recovered as much, and women have recovered in some sense a little bit more. And so that's one notable one. And the education one, I think, is another one I think people kind of feel is this idea that if you have a graduate degree, if you have a bachelor's degree, actually the labor market's probably even a little better today than it was before the recession hit. But people who are high school or less in particular or who have some college, kind of an associate's degree, they haven't recovered. And I think both the men and the high school or less are things that you see if you think that whether it's manufacturing or construction or things like this have not done as well and maybe education, healthcare services type jobs have done better. That matches with those experiences of both by gender and education. Let me quote from the paper on the education piece. I think it's super important. I'll quote here. In fact, the employment rate gap for people with a high school degree or less is worse today than the gap was for those with a bachelor's degree in 2010. Yeah, I think that's a pretty important striking fact that People sometimes get tangled up in questions about returns to education or whether is a college degree worth it or things like that. But, you know, as someone who looks at the monthly job report every month, you know, you look and you you see the unemployment rates and you see the things like that and you just think, like, it shows up very, very, very starkly. Ryan, do you want to talk about the jobs gap in terms of racial demographics? Yeah, so there are smaller differences by race than the educational differences Jay was just describing, which I think are really, really pronounced. But it is notable that whites have actually recovered more slowly than blacks and Hispanics have. Of course, as with men, you know, the whites are starting from a higher level of employment, but the recovery from the Great Recession has been somewhat weaker than for other groups. Well, I think this is a great time to segue into the other major issue. So we say the jobs gap is closed as of July 2017, but that hardly tells the story about the labor market, about working. And Jay, you referenced this a few minutes ago. There is a massive issue that we should be looking at, and I will let you introduce that. Sure. So I think the next analysis we put out also in August, but a few weeks later, was about who is out of the labor force. And there's an emphasis in this project where we're looking at kind of within prime age workers, who's out of the labor force. So, you know, we can sit there and say, look, people retire. You know, that's good. We, you know, if people hit a certain age, they'd like to retire. 
people 16 to 24 actually work at a lower rate than they used to, but some of that just more of them are in school and fewer of them are working while they're in school. And so those are choices that it's not clear you want to say are good or bad, especially on the working while in school. That may be good, that may be bad. But for the people in what gets defined as prime age, kind of that 25 to 54 range, you sit there and say, we generally think most of these people or a lot of these people should be working. And if they're not, it's important to understand why not. And the only thing we didn't talk about before on the disaggregation actually is in terms of the jobs gap, it's actually people over 55 are working at higher rates than they were before the recession. That's one of the reasons the jobs gap has closed. People in the prime age actually are not back to where they were in 2007. And so we see that prime age labor force participation or prime age employment rates are not back to where they were. And that's why we wanted to kind of study who's out of the labor force and why. Let me follow up on that issue of people over 55 working at higher rates. Are there any theories as to why that is? What kind of jobs are they doing? Some of it, I mean, there's a little bit that there's been a change to Social Security, both in terms of, you know, what's the retirement age people are facing and then also how punitive it is to retire early at 62. And so that just there are strict financial reasons to stay in. I think there's also just changes in longevity and health and things like that, that people who are in their early 60s expect to live a lot longer and either want to save more or feel like they're not ready to be retired. I would just add. add to that. There's some previous Hamilton Project work actually on the change over the last several decades in the relative health of young and old people. And older folks are actually looking healthier relative to younger folks now than they once did. So that could play a role. One of the defining data points of this whole conversation is the unemployment rate. We say, I think as of today, it's 4.3%, but as we know, that doesn't tell the whole story. But also some have said, well, you know, 4.3% is the economy at full employment. But I think that your discussion of labor force participation rate belies that notion. Yeah, so we're at 81.8% prime age labor force participation rate, and that's about one percentage point below where it was before the recession started. And it's a good two and a half points lower than where that number peaked if you go back right around 2000. And so in that sense, you can look and you can say, it seems like we could have more people working. But again, the question is, why aren't they working? And so that's really kind of the heart of this analysis is to think on the one hand, why aren't they working? We have surveys that explain that. And then also, what are they doing in some sense? Like, how are they supporting themselves? How are they living? Things like that. And that's really what we wanted to focus on in this report. I'm going to put a number to that 81.8%. I believe in the analysis, it says 24 million men and women of prime working age we're not in the labor force. So Jay, you're talking about trying to answer the question, why aren't they working and what are they doing? What are some of the answers to those questions? The thing I really took away from this report more than anything else is this is not a monolithic group of people. There is a wide range of reasons why people aren't in the labor force. And I think from a policy perspective, that's really important because it means there's no one single policy that's going to push a lot of these people back in. You're going to need to deal with the different reasons they're out. And so, you know, on the one hand, you could say, you know, more than a third of the prime age people out of the labor force are caregivers. So almost overwhelmingly women in that group, but they are either taking care of kids or they're taking care of parents or some other family member. And that's why they're not working in a market sense. They're, they're certainly working in some sense, but they're not in the market economy because they're taking care of someone. And so that's one really big block. And if you think about moving some of those people into the labor force, they're not just going to move automatically. You'd need you know, either more flexible scheduling, you'd need better childcare 
or subsidize childcare for some of them, you'd need to do a bunch of policies around making the workplace more friendly to families to get some of these people back in the labor force. Certainly some of them don't want to be in it, right? Some people just say, like, I want to stay home and take care of my kid. That's what I want to be doing. And that's a choice. You don't want to say that's wrong. But to the extent that there's some who would like to be working, you want to make sure that's possible. And I think it's worth emphasizing that women are making up more than two-thirds of the prime age non-participants. So they are, you know, a large part of the story here. Women's labor force participation has been falling, as Jay mentioned, since about 2000. And that's caused overall labor force participation to fall along with it. And so we see that in our analysis that there's just a, a large role for women. One, one thing that's interesting is that once you take out the women who are caregivers, women and men actually report pretty similar reasons, pretty similar rates for you know, not being in the labor force. Before hearing about what's happening in Congress from Molly Reynolds, I want to introduce a new concept for the Brookings Cafeteria. I talked to a lot of experts about a wide range of public policy challenges and solutions. But I'd like to hear your story, how the topics I discuss with experts in the studio are present in your life. For example, what is your experience with labor force participation? How did you or have you dealt with the economic downturn and slow recovery since the onset of the Great Recession in 2007? Send me an email, or better yet, an audio recording. I'm at bcp at brookings.edu. I'd love to hear from you. And now, Molly Reynolds on what's happening in Congress. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. When Congress returned from its August recess last week, many expected that much of the month of September would be consumed with negotiations between the Democrats and the Republicans on avoiding both the default on the federal government's debt and a partial shutdown of the federal government. Thanks in part to the need to get funding for disaster relief in Texas out the door, however, Congress and the White House reached a deal to address those issues quickly, which passed with large bipartisan majorities in both chambers. So what now? Where does Congress go next? There will be plenty of fights to come, to be sure. The continuing resolution funding the government extends only until early December. The extension of the debt limit expires at the same time, though actions by the Treasury Department will likely postpone the need for action on the debt ceiling until sometime in 2018. Avoiding a shutdown in December could involve a complicated agreement across several issues, including a potential deal to lift discretionary spending caps that limit overall spending on both defense and non-defense programs a potential compromise on immigration policy, including protections for individuals currently participating in the DACA program, could also get wrapped up in the debate. But before the fight between Republicans and Democrats over discretionary spending heats up again, we're likely to see a different conflict within the Republican Party continue to play out over tax legislation. Since the beginning of the year, congressional Republicans have indicated that their second major legislative priority after a bill repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act would be changes to the tax code. The healthcare effort has been stalled since a failed Senate vote in late July, and thanks to recent guidance from the Senate parliamentarian, the filibuster-proof legislative vehicle Republicans have been using to move a healthcare bill expires at the end of September. After that date, if Republicans want to push ahead on a filibuster-proof healthcare bill, and that's a big if, they'd have to try and combine it with their nascent efforts to pass tax legislation using the same party-line process. Because Republicans intend to use procedures that allow them to forego working with the Democrats, most of the focus, just as it was on the health care debate, will be on resolving intra-party divisions rather than disagreements across party lines. Some of these divides are substantive. 
by how much should the corporate tax rate be reduced? President Trump has advocated a cut from 35% to 15%, while Speaker of the House Paul Ryan has indicated the rate in the low to mid-20s as his goal. What other tax breaks are on the table? Disagreements about things like changes to the tax structure for hedge fund managers and about ending the deduction for state and local income taxes also must be resolved. As more and more details emerge, expect increasing involvement from interest groups who are expected to fight tooth and nail to protect their favorite existing provisions in the tax code. In addition to the substance, there's the question of the tactics the bill may embrace in order to comply with various rules of the budget process. One major debate is over what baseline picture Congress will use to compare the tax bill to in order to measure its effect on the federal budget. One approach, which would give Congress more room to work without increasing the federal deficit, would assume that existing tax cuts that are set to expire would be extended. But that would represent a departure from past practice. At the end of the day, the choice about the baseline and other tactical questions are likely just extensions of members' underlying preferences about the substantive size and scope of the tax package. While members often make principled argument about Congress's rules and procedures, we should generally think about their preferences over process as actually preferences about policy. If members actually want larger cuts than the usual procedures will allow, we should generally expect them to endorse the procedural changes necessary to achieve the policy they want. Finally, there are disagreements among Republicans over strategy. To formally begin consideration of a filibuster-proof reconciliation bill, both the House and the Senate must first approve a budget resolution, which, among other things, defines the scope of the legislation to be considered through the reconciliation process. The budget resolution also can't be filibustered in the Senate, but so far, House Republicans have been unable to build a majority for it in the lower chamber. One major sticking point has been that conservatives, including members of the House Freedom Caucus, have insisted on more details on the size and scope of the tax legislation that the budget would initiate before they're willing to vote for it. This presents Republican leaders with a trade-off. If they lay out a plan now that's not only detailed but favors the far-right end of the party, they may get a budget resolution through the chamber. But putting down such a marker now would make it easier for Democrats to unite in opposition to the plan going forward. While Republicans don't need Democrats' help, there may be strategic value in keeping that option open. As we learned from the fight over health care, when Republicans shut Democrats out, it focuses attention on the divisions within the Republican Party rather than divisions across the parties. Embracing the most conservative option out of the gate also makes it harder to blame Democrats, especially those in the Senate, up for re-election in 2018 and states Trump won for not going along with the plan. Like this year's health care debate, the fight over tax legislation is likely to take many turns before Republicans reach the finish line. Whether or not they cross it successfully remains to be seen, but we'll learn more about their prospects in the next few weeks. And that's what's happening in Congress. There's this great chart, if you will, series of boxes that show the reasons for prime age non-participation. I encourage listeners to go go look at it and study it. It's got some great colors and, and labels. So one of the things that really jumps out at me between men and women who are prime age non-participants is the number of them who cite being disabled for not working. Can you address that? So I think if you add them together, it's not quite 30% of the prime age people out of the labor force are reporting being either ill or disabled. So this is a, you know, a big chunk of who's out of the labor force, and it's split almost exactly between men and women, that this is why they're out of the labor force, is that for some reason they are either ill or disabled. One thing that really surprised me with this analysis is the team went and looked back a decade earlier, and 
that was almost the exact same share of people out of the labor force a decade ago. I think sometimes people have this sense that the recession hit and a bunch of people moved on to disability and got out of the labor force. And there are more people who are on disability now than before. There are more people out of the labor force. Population grows and the percentage grew. But it's not explaining some massive spike in people being out of the labor force. It's a big chunk of it. And it's important. And again, when you go back to what would you need to do to get these people back in the labor force, sometimes it's going to be, you know, it could be drug treatment. It could be mental health treatment. It could be physical treatments. It could be making sure the labor market is more flexible to adjust to the different needs that these workers would have. It's going to require a more multifaceted policy approach than simply saying, let's push people back in. I'll say that some of the other reasons why people who are prime age are not participating in the labor force include their students, they have other sources of income, they're early retired. And so there's a lot of different things going on here, but the largest categories, as the chart shows, are disabled or ill, or for women especially, they are caregivers. So one of the questions that I think a lot of people would ask is, for those who are prime age and out of the labor force, in terms of their households and their families, how are they making ends meet? I mean, a lot of people on social welfare programs, for example. So a lot of people live in households with earnings. So I think we were somewhat surprised by that. Those who don't have earnings, many of them have retirement income. And there's a relatively small fraction that are exclusively relying on public support. Now, that does vary by the types of households. So those adult prime-age non-participants who are living with no other adults, they are particularly likely to be receiving public support. But those who are living with a partner or with parents are much more likely to live in higher income households that have earned income. Let's break it down a little further too. We've talked about the male-female aspects of prime age non-participation, but as with the jobs gap analysis, you've also broken it down by age, by educational attainment and other factors. Can you address some of those? I think one of the things beyond the striking fact that, you know, two-thirds of the people who are prime age or out of the labor force are women is just that it is also kind of an education issue. So people who are high school or less are just far more likely to be out of the labor market, and they also make up the big share of it. And if you look at people with a bachelor's degree or more, the overwhelming bulk of men who have a bachelor's degree are in the labor market. And still, the far and away majority of women who are also there, I think there's some portion of those women who are not in the labor force, and I think we often think that's usually a kind of a caregiver situation. But if you turn to the high school or less, kind of the other side of the spectrum, then you start to get a much bigger chunk of men who are out of the labor force, and the kind of largest block of people out of the labor force who are prime age is women with a high school degree or less. To put numbers to that, there are about 8 million women with a high school degree or less who are prime age non-participants, and a little more than 4 million men that comes up over and over is the importance of education. Yeah. The higher your educational attainment, it's almost a straight relationship to, you know, your employment prospects. It's quite amazing. Yeah. It's both whether you're in the labor force and then your unemployment rate if you're in the labor force as well. Considering a lot of these issues that we're talking about, I mean, one story, and maybe this is overportrayed in the media, but we hear a lot about people with less than a college education. We hear a lot about, and this comes from your jobs gap analysis, white workers are not recovering as much. You hear about people on disability, people perhaps on opioids. It just feels like there's a lot going on here about people not in the labor force who are white, less educated, and perhaps dealing with some issues of illness and disability. Is that kind of a story that emerges from all these data? I would say to some extent. I think certainly on the disability side, it's not 
material in our paper, but there's a separate work by Alan Kruger that has shown that that a large chunk of the men who are out of the labor force, who are prime age men out of the labor force, report using pain medication on a daily basis. And that could include, although doesn't necessarily include, opioids. And when we sat there and said, you know, it's 30% of people who are out of the labor force, or, or not quite 30%, are disabled or ill, for men it's a much higher share. It's, it's almost half. And so then again, you sit there and you say, you know, to what extent is there pain or addiction that gets mixed in with that? I think there certainly is a story there. And again, it's a lot of people who are lower skill or lower education, at least we can say. And especially if you look at the people who are, you know, we sat there and said, there are a lot of reasons you can kind of understand. You're a caregiver or you're disabled or things like that, or you're retired. I mean, if you're 50 and you're retired, I guess good for you. Or you're a student. You've gone back to school a little later for additional training, things like that. But then you start to parse down. You, you run out, right? You start to say, there is this chunk, and it's it's less than a fifth, but there's this chunk of people who you say, they're not any of those things. And they're just kind of out of the labor force for some reason. Roughly half of those people who are men are high school or less. Like these people, you say, I'm not sure why they're out of the labor force. I'm not sure what's going on. It definitely there does start to feel like a skill or education issue. Well, this being Brookings and also especially this being the Hamilton Project, we're going to move from analysis to policy solutions. Jay, you mentioned a few of these earlier in reference to women who are caregivers. One policy approach would be flexible scheduling, better child care. What are some of the other kinds of policy options that you have looked at to help people who want to work get into the labor market? I think of this, and Ryan should certainly jump in, again, think of these different buckets. So on the one hand, for caregivers, there's some things I would like to do for caregivers or I think we at Hamilton have talked about and we'll have an event and a book coming out this fall talking about women's role in the economy. And I think a lot of the policies involved there play into this. You know, if you think about our labor market institutions kind of having been designed in many ways decades and decades and even generations ago, the labor force looks different now and the demands on people look different now. And whether it's flexible scheduling, whether it's childcare, things like that, that might help women stay in the labor force or for that matter, coming up with ways to get women back into the labor force, I think would be important. On the disability side, whether it's drug treatment or mental health care or things like that, to try to make sure you don't lose people out of the labor force altogether becomes important. But then for this kind of group who are lower skilled and out of the labor force for reasons that are a little unclear, I think that's where investments in training programs or public employment or apprenticeships or things like that of just trying to say we need to get people back in. The U.S. just does, frankly, less what gets referred to globally as active labor market policies, things that help people get into the labor market. We do less than anyone else there. And I think in some sense, when you look at data like this, it shows. I agree and would add just that I think tax reform plays a role here too. So on the low-skilled side, you know, you can think of investments like the earned income tax credit as being really important to making work rewarding for folks with less education. Another completely different sort of tax reform that I think is interesting and that connects with our analysis here is that many women in higher income households face very high marginal tax rates. And so the Hamilton Project has released a proposal in the past and will again in the fall, about trying to lower marginal tax rates for those women. And so that could help with this group of women who have bachelor's degrees and are not participating potentially due to the tax code that discourages it. And the only thing I'd add also, though, and this in some sense feels much broader and not targeted strictly here, but as you've mentioned many times, the education story comes up a lot. And so I think Hamilton has a 
long history of putting out lots of proposals, trying to think of ways to get people into school and keep them into school and make sure that that education they're getting is helpful to them in terms of their labor market outcomes. And so whether it's using Pell Grants more creatively and making sure you're using them in the right way, re-entry, it's not something we can actually test in the data that was used here, but there's certainly a sense that people leaving prison have trouble getting back into the labor market. It's another place where the U.S. just looks different than the rest of the world because we do put more people in prison. And so, you know, we had a program back earlier this year thinking about re-entry and trying to get people, when they leave prison, back into the labor market. I think, again, it comes down to the notion that you've got a real range of people who are out of the labor force, and there's not one thing you can do, but you need to do a lot of things. And each thing you do will hopefully try to get some of these people back in the labor market. And just to be clear, it's important for the economy to have these people working because that's more output per capita, more resources for us. It's also crucial for people. For most or many people, a lot of their identity is tied up in their job. And for people who are out of the labor force, and this again comes from other studies, you, you look at life satisfaction, you look at happiness measures, being out of the labor force with the exception of caregivers, being out of the labor force is not a fun experience. People are generally pretty unhappy in their life and trying to find ways to get those people back into the labor force and into jobs is I think a really important public policy goal. Well, I think we'll leave it there, gentlemen. You can find all of this research and more at hamiltonproject.org. Ryan Nunn, Jay Shambaugh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. It was a fun conversation. Investment in research and development by the public, private, and nonprofit sectors is crucial to the gains in global health from diseases including AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis. Here to talk about a new report on private sector investment in global health R&D is John Villasenor, a non-resident senior fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings and a professor of electrical engineering, public policy, and management, and a visiting professor of law at UCLA. John, welcome back to the studio. Thank you very much. All right, so we're talking about the second report of the Brookings Private Sector Global Health R&D Project. Can you recap how this report fits in with the project so far that we talked about on the Brookings Cafeteria podcast in April? Yes, so this is the second of the reports that we've written in association with this project. And just to provide people with a little bit of context, this project is addressing global health R&D, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And in these various reports, we're addressing different aspects of the global health R&D challenges and proposing some approaches that can hopefully help address some of those challenges. So global health research and development, what is global health research and development? It's a great question, and it can mean different things to different people. But in the context of our work, we're focusing on communicable diseases that disproportionately tend to impact people in developing countries. So that doesn't mean that these same diseases uh, can't also impact people in more developed countries, but we're focusing on those diseases that have this disproportionate impact. Also, as suggested by, you know, talking about communicable diseases, we're not focusing on non-communicable diseases, although that is, in some people's definition, part of the global health landscape. So we're focused on these communicable diseases. In addition, we're focusing on R&D, so we're not, for example, focusing on delivery, which is an important component of the global health equation of things like, you know, access to clinics and things like that. And without in any way downgrading the importance of that, because it is really important, we're focusing more upstream on the development of the uh, drugs and vaccines and diagnostic tools that can be used to help improve global health outcomes. 
as I recall, and please check me on this, the first report focused on government capacity for investment in public health issues. And you ranked a bunch of countries across a whole bunch of different metrics. This report is more focused on private sector investment in research and development. That's right. And the additional point I'd make is that while it is absolutely true that we were looking largely at government-driven metrics in the first report, the motivation for doing that was the same underlying motivation we have in this second report and throughout this project, which is looking at the private sector as an actor in the global health landscape. And the reason they're related, of course, is because private sector activities are in part driven by or impeded by frameworks that governments can create. So in the first report, we looked at what we called the health governance capacity, and we evaluated that through five verticals being health management capacity, the policies related to health governance, regulations, infrastructure and financing, and then health systems. And in the present report, the one that we've just released, we're looking very specifically at some of the private sector spending in the global health landscape and mechanisms we think can be brought to bear to improve the climate for that investment. One of the things that I find really interesting about this, and this might be an old school way of thinking, is that public health, so we think about global health, when we get to a country level, we're talking about public health. That seems like it's largely a government interest, or it has been a government public sector interest. So now you're bringing to bear this analysis, this research about the private sector's role. Why is private sector involvement, private sector investment so important in this equation for global health? Well, a couple of things. It's a really important question. Certainly, governments do have and should have an interest in public health issues, both for just maximizing the health of their populations, and of course, there's also uh, many economic consequences as well. But I think it's important to emphasize that governments alone, in general, cannot and should not be expected to be the only actors in the public health space. The scale of the problem is very high, and also the solutions will of necessity and have historically of necessity required engagement from the private sector. So if you look, for example, at drugs and vaccines and diagnostics, in all of those cases, you have significant private sector activity historically. And one of the things we've looked at, you've had significant private sector activity generally, not only in a global health context, but one of the areas we're interested in is how does the private sector engage with those in the global health context and how can that be expanded? So you really need both. You need public sector, government interest and engagement, but I personally do not think it's the right solution to expect that the entire burden of that should fall on government. And therefore, if you believe that, then you need to create the proper incentives so that private sector has the incentive to then make the investments because they see an economic opportunity in doing so. I want to come back to those incentives in a minute, but first I want to ask you, one thing that strikes me in reading this report is that the role of pharmaceutical companies seems to be very huge in this investment activity. Can you address that? Yeah, I mean, of course, that's absolutely right. Pharmaceutical companies have historically been prime actors in this space. They invest enormous amounts of money developing new drugs and bringing them to market and will be a critical pillar of the solutions going forward, particularly in the global health context. So they're an incredibly important part of the ecosystem. Another factor that jumped out at me was the role of China and India in this whole process. You write that their populations represent 35% of the world's population, so obviously they have a huge incentive to have a lot of investment in 
medicines for their own people, but how are China and India playing on the world stage? They're obviously different, but collectively they're, as you mentioned, over a third of the global population. The market sizes there are enormous, and the potential there is enormous. And, of course, just because of the size of the population, the number of people who could benefit from new drugs and vaccines, for example, is large as well. They're of interest in several ways. One is as buyers, customers, as you will, for private sector. When a private sector entity makes an investment to develop, let's say, a diagnostic tool that could be used in a global health context, there are just simply a lot of people in China and India who might be beneficiaries of that. And also, they are important players or can be important players in the upstream R&D aspect of this as well. So we think that those are two, again, obviously in the discussion here, we're addressing them together, but they're obviously very distinct with very different characteristics, but they share having an enormous population. And by virtue of that, and by the very rapid changes we're seeing in both of those countries, they are important players in the broader global health R&D scheme. I want to give listeners a sense of the scale of this global investment in R&D. And one of the figures that I take away from the paper is $159.9 billion, close to $160 billion in investment in global health R&D. And that actually might be excluding some of the major components. Can you address that scope question? Yeah, one of the things that we tried to do in this most recent paper is to get a sense by looking at, for example, publicly available data from some of the pharmaceutical companies, the major pharmaceutical companies, uh, venture capital activity, and so on, to get a sense for how much investment there is really in this space. And you could come up with a different number depending on how you define it. But in broad terms, you know, we were surprised was a number that was somewhat larger than we had expected. So the good news is there is you know, quite a lot of money flowing in to investments. We believe that there is certainly room for improvement. One of the things we've done in this report is, is try to come up with some incentives and framing and mechanisms that can make these investments more attractive to the private sector and thereby spur them to get more engaged in this sector. In doing so, we understand that these are economically motivated entities, and so the incentives need to be in place for them to have the economic motivation to invest the money. In addition to incentives, and again, I want to end by talking about some of the incentives, but first I want to talk about some disincentives, and you enumerate a lot of them in the paper. One that strikes me is that public health problems seem to be concentrated in a lot of the poorer countries of the world, the developing economies of the world. Why would a private business want to invest in that kind of environment? A couple of reasons. So first of all, the markets are still very large. So even if a particular drug on a per-dose basis, that cost might be relatively low, multiplied over many, many people, there's a substantial revenue opportunity. And so I think there's an opportunity to develop and deliver drugs that are well within the range of affordability for these populations, yet that still correspond in the aggregate simply because the multiplier is so large to significant absolute revenue numbers. So in the countries that you mentioned, in many cases, there's obviously many exceptions as well. I mean, there are plenty of countries with very significant poverty that have pretty small populations and plenty of countries with very large populations that don't have a lot of endemic poverty. But a lot of the poorer countries are where we see a significant communicable disease problem in the global health context. And so looking at those countries as opportunities to improve health outcomes and doing so in a way that can provide good financial returns given the proper frameworks for the private sector is a win-win. Well, another obstacle or disincentive to investment would be 
conflict or fragile governance. Can you address what you found in that situation? Yeah, and that's something that we were more focused on in the first report. But yes, it's undeniable that if there's challenges in bringing a drug to market and actually letting the markets run, which is a challenge that you often see when you have conflict zones, then that clearly impedes the market. Conflict zones are really important, but there's a very large market outside those zones. And the other thing I think it's important to say is that you know, today's conflict zone isn't necessarily going to be tomorrow's conflict zone. Given the timescales associated with drug development, I think, or at least I'd like to believe that most, if not all, of conflict zones will, in the not-too-distant future, develop to the point where there isn't the conflict that you have today and that it will be more feasible to engage in the delivery side, which, again, we didn't focus on the delivery, but absent the potential for delivery, the market isn't really accessible. Let's turn to what you called proper incentives. In the paper, you have a list of 11, I think, opportunities for the private sector to invest, to increase their investment in R&D in global health. Can you talk about just some of those? These are steps that we think that either the private sector itself can take or that governments can take to better position the private sector for engagement. So one area that we've looked at here and we also may have mentioned it earlier is expediting the regulatory process for new drugs and vaccines. And you know, obviously this is not a, not a secret. Many people have, have observed this as well, but the regulatory delays and complexity can sometimes be an impediment to expedited delivery of new drugs. And of course, we're not advocating short-circuiting the regulatory process, but merely doing it well, but more quickly than is often done today. Bringing in the time horizon when drug companies and people who invest in the pharmaceutical market can realize revenues from those investments, then obviously that's a powerful lever on the investment incentive. So that's one example Another thing that we've looked at is the potential use of tax incentives. And without getting into too much of the arcane details of that, there's a portfolio. And of course, economists can you know, debate this you know, in very much detail. But there's a portfolio of tools that can be used to create, to increase the incentives for investment. And so we've highlighted that as an area that's absolutely worth consideration. And then we've also looked at making the drug development process more efficient. And this, of course, by the way, is something which applies not only in a global health context, but just globally, which is use of technologies such as artificial intelligence to improve the speed of new drug production. So there's a set of software tools and data mining tools that have the potential, in some cases, to lead to more efficient upfront investment costs and closer time horizons for realizing return on those investments. But again, the broader set of recommendations here is underpinned by the understanding that you need a thriving, active engagement from the private sector to address these global health challenges. It's not workable simply to sit back and assume that governments are going to alone bear that burden. And then if you expect the private sector to bear some of that burden, there need to be the frameworks that will give them the incentive to make the investments so they can engage in that sector while also being responsive to their need to make investments that make sense economically. Well, I encourage listeners to find the report on our website, download it, learn a lot more about the topic. John, you and your collaborators started with a paper on governance capacity. Now you've moved on to private sector investment. Uh, What's next in the project? Yeah, well, we're still scoping out our next paper, but We plan to be looking more carefully at some of the market sizing opportunities 
in some of these particular places. In other words, instead of saying what I said today, which is that it's a big market, to put some numbers on how big that market is and how that's likely to develop over time. John Phyllis Honor is co-author with Daryl West and Jake Schneider of Private Sector Investment and Global Health R&D, Spending Levels, Barriers, and Opportunities. You can find it on our website. John, thanks for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Brennan Hoban for production assistance. Bill Feynman does the book interviews. And by the way, my congratulations to Bill for being named the new director of the Brookings Institution Press. Our intern is Pamela Berman. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>